Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays at this time for the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Yeah, thank you, Nachum. Always good to be with you. Appreciate that. Uh, we left the air last week, and uh, about an hour later, Israel was at war. Do we call it a war? I don't know. You could tell us how to classify it, but they certainly were under tremendous pressure, and we started getting messages from friends and relatives in Israel. They planned on spending Friday night, or they likely were planning to spend Friday night in uh, bomb shelters, sealed rooms, etc., and uh, that is, uh, for those of you uh, who know people in certain areas of Israel, that's exactly what happened. So I know there was an escalation. We, uh, we we touched on it last week in terms of what was going on during the week and the potential reaction of the enemy uh, to what was going on. But uh, why did it get to that point? We'll, we'll discuss why it only lasted a certain number of days and hours, but why did it get to that point last Friday? Well, after Israel captured the leader of the of Pidge, of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, it was inevitable that there was going to be a response at some point from them. But Israel got word that there was going to be an escalation on their part uh, in terms of anti-tank missiles targeting a bus in Israel and other actions. And they can tell when uh, they see the activity on the ground. And the uh, so the escalation... Uh, was almost inevitable, and, it's, and it shows Israeli intelligence was very good. And this time, if you saw the pinpointing of the strikes of a single apartment in a building, taking out much of the leadership of, of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, we learned about the commanders of the north and the south, but also there were about 12 of the leaders of the, organiz- of the terrorist organization um, were arrested, were um, eliminated, let's say, and the uh, and thank God there were no Israeli casualties, um, uh, fatal fatalities during this uh, this conflict. And I think they felt they had uh, achieved what they could. When you ask about the length, um, there comes a point where you start escalating the numbers and the general international community, while quick always to condemn Israel, this time was much more muted in their response, and especially in much of the Arab world, uh, certainly the Abraham Accord countries, when they may be critical uh, in a performer way, it was not the kind of reaction, with the exception, I think, of Jordan primarily, that we would then normally get. And Israel did not want to see, you know, an escalation and further uh, um, than measures at the UN and starting to to uh, have a, a minimum... Um, Diminishing return from um, uh, from the further action. So it seems that uh, they, up to the last minute, were removing. The, they hit a, a major, major tunnel that was up to the border with Israel. They hit um, manufacturing sites and some of the command and control centers. So it's, uh, you know, and remember, a lot of this is within civilian populations, well hidden inside in in, uh, apartment buildings, which were purely residential. So it's it's a very complicated and difficult thing, especially when you don't want to have a ground invasion, um, you know, and have Israeli troops put put in danger. And also by the way it was conducted, keeping Hamas out of it was very important. How about a uh, an additional word about how miraculous it is that there were no Israeli casualties? Uh, I said that that the but but people don't know how many rockets 
who were fired immediately, said 1,100, and that 200 fell within Gaza itself and were responsible for many of the deaths that then were being blamed on Israel. The, um, the Iron Dome's amazing success rate of 96%, um, the, um, also the response and of the people who, who you know, lived again for night after night after night in the, in the uh, bomb shelters even before the conflict started because they had advanced warning by a couple of days. But the, you know, it's a combination of all those things. And also you, anybody who doesn't see Yad Hashem in all of this and the yeah. ability to withstand this, uh, an onslaught of a thousand missiles and you saw the uh, Iron Dome's operations were shown, everybody could see them, but realize how expensive it is to fire the Iron Dome. And yet they they had such a remarkable rate of um, of, of uh, success. Since 2001, over 23,000 rockets and mortars have been fired from Gaza by both Pigeon and Hamas into Israel. 23,000. Unbelievable. Is it hard to prove that um, that uh, many of the many of the casualties in Gaza were the result of their own colleagues? Is that is that difficult to prove? Does the world roll their eyes when Israel makes that claim? Yes, I think that that is true. That uh, the world, you know, is so skeptical. But this time, uh, Hezbollah even had some a source had some videos, but Hamas and and their own sources showed. Uh, pictures of the trajectory of, of missiles, the one that hit the, the children. We believe that that was uh, the one that was shown. But yes, this time Israel moved quickly to get the message out and to uh, show the the fact that you had hundreds of, of their of the missiles fired by Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, landed in within the Gazan borders and were responsible for. Uh, a, a lot of the casualties. So um, I think the, the if you see, it was a much more muted reaction. Even though a lot of the press was really quick to to um, to jump on, uh, you know, every criticism and, and talking about the Palestinian casualties and and not identifying that how many of them were terrorists and how many of them were killed by errant fire. It did then turn a little bit, and they started at least throwing in a mention of it. Right. And they know that Pidge, you know, is is uh, unlike other groups. It's so extreme that they won't negotiate in any kind of – they don't negotiate in any way. But they have their own summer camps for high school students where they teach this radical ideology <laughs> and terrorism and do paramilitary training. And, the um, you know, it's a, it's a group that's hard to love. If I understood you correctly, it sounded like Israel's response, the type and the immediacy of their response, is what kept Hamas out. Is that is is that in fact what kept Hamas out of this? There were constant negotiations. It, look, Hamas is welcomes the fact that Pidge gets weakened because they're competition, uh. and so Israel was doing uh, Hamas's work on the one hand. Second, they know the people in Gaza don't want another war, and I'm sure that Palestine, that the Hamas people uh, were taken care of, so that they would. Uh, it was in their interest to keep um, the, all, the fuel coming in, keeping the electricity, even if it was down to four hours a, right. a day. But but they can take credit for the fact that they stabilized the situation, didn't join. You know, it, it is it's true.
true in Lebanon too, for instance, that the people don't want another war because they pay a price for it. Right. And you see growing resistance to, to Hezbollah. You have resistance. It's hard. You can't publicly express it if you want to live. But yeah, they, they moved quickly. They're, they want to restore. Israel made its um, aims very clear this time and what they were uh, going after. And they and they showed the evidence that they had good intelligence about the planned uh, attacks against civilian populations. Um, one might think that the only reason that Hamas stays out is because they're unprepared uh, to, you know, go to full scale war. I understand that the you know the the civilians don't want war, but that doesn't usually stop these groups from you know conducting these types of uh, missile strikes against Israel. Um, it, it, is it possible? that they would have joined in if they were simply prepared and had their arsenal where they'd like it to be, you know, last week? I think the, they're always prepared to fire. Usually they do symbolic uh, firings, you know, regardless of who the primary target of its Hamas and Pitch fires because they know that they're you're going to bring the wrath down on them. So, um, and this time you did not have even that kind of a symbolic shooting of a couple rockets to um, you know, to justify their uh, their credentials. So uh, I think that it's it 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 is in everyone's interest. You know that um, Pidge is a wholly owned subsidiary of Iran. Hamas is a contractor. It's true they get a lot of money from them. And they get material, but Pidge is completely owned by them and run by them. And uh, the the aid they get tens of millions of dollars a year from Iran and couldn't exist without them. And so there's, there's a rivalry there. There are other um, you know, uh, concerns within Gaza itself where they're still rebuilding from last year's war. Most of the reconstruction hasn't taken place and people live with that every day and they see it and they don't want more of it. So the, the um, um, you know, it, it, I think Israel played it very smart, and I think there was ongoing discussions between the Hamas intermediaries and Israelis um, to make sure that that remained the case. What now for Israel? Every time that they they have to worry that every time they take out a terrorist or every time they do uh, they embark on some type of action, uh, this rocket fire could begin again from Gaza. That's always a concern, and it, and the real concern is that you have it from Gaza and from the. Uh, from within Judea and Samaria or, and from Lebanon at one time, and now Syria as well, where you know that Hezbollah is building up its presence near the Israeli border uh, and uh, has established itself much more. And the, the UNIFIL troops are doing nothing to fulfill the mandate of 1703, which requires them to stop it and to identify it and to, to uh, counter it. In fact, they just uh, melt away in the face of this. So you have another front that, that develops, and it's uh, Iran's goal to be able to hit Israel from all sides, including from Iraq over Jordan and from Syria, Lebanon, Hamas, and Yemen. And the Yemenis you know, said that they're ready to join and come in, the Houthis, that is, yeah. to support um, uh, uh, the terrorists. Why are we led to believe that this ceasefire would result in a couple of uh, living Israelis and a, and uh, and the uh, soldiers' bodies that Israel would like to retrieve? Why do we think that, that that this would be the end result of this ceasefire? 
because it's the hope each time Israel works relentlessly to get them back. I know there's criticism about whether we shouldn't do anything unless we get back the bodies. I've been very involved with them since the the beginning, and it's it's heartbreaking to deal with the families and to see the, how much they suffer until they get the bodies back and have uh, Kvura in Israel, uh, have them buried in Israel, or get back the living ones. Uh, it's it's uh, torturous, and even the UN and others have to finally come out on the right side of this issue. Uh, not doing anything, but at least verbally, verbalizing it uh, somewhat. Uh, by the way, I, and I forgot to say in answer to your previous question, Israel this time took out a lot of infrastructure. If this does not, you don't rebuild that immediately. And the capacity to launch, you, you they have still three, 4,000 rockets at least, maybe 5,000 rockets. They used uh, uh, quite a number of the long-range ones, but many short-range, which are much cheaper. The long-range ones are more sophisticated and have, and some of them with guidance systems, as you see by the number that fell within Gaza. They don't all have operative guidance systems or know how to operate them properly. But the a lot of the infrastructure, the manufacturing sites, the uh, arms depots were hit. And sometimes you could see the pictures, you know, where they were taken even from Israel, but where you see the plumes of, of black smoke and then all of a sudden the second big explosion is because they hit a arms depot. And then when it's subsequent, it gets to the next uh, cache of arms, it blows up again. So the, they did hit a lot of the infrastructure capacity of, of pitch. Finally on this, any... Uh... Any winners and losers of note from this entire episode had the uh, temporary prime minister do? So that obviously is now the the guessing game in Israel about who benefited, and especially because of the primaries this week. I think that Gantz benefited a lot. Uh, I think um, Lapid uh, showed himself to be prime ministerial. Uh, I think Netanyahu, by going for the briefing and coming out in support of the government, did the right thing. I don't know that it lasts three months. You know, people in Israel move on to the next day, the challenges of, of each day. Right. Uh, and if things remain quiet for a while, then they will look even better. I don't know that it'll mean a major shift because people are very committed to the parties that they belong to. It does change people's perceptions, perhaps, and or gives them a greater sense of confidence uh, in some of the people who are involved in this. But again, you know, it's now the next day's scandal, battle, whatever that will have influence. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored digital radio around the world. The web at AlchemSegal.com and the AlchemSegal Network. And of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. I know you don't always like to comment on things happening on this side of the world, but too many people are asking me. To ask your opinion, uh, your impression of the FBI raid on the former prime on the former president's house this week, whether there were nuclear documents that were being seized or not, uh, a- any general reaction to what happened this week? Listen, it's very troubling. Uh, anything that shakes people's confidence in the in the government and democracy, or seems to challenge it from all sides, I think is very dangerous. I think we're living at a at a very strange time in America where we see fundamental 
assumptions challenged, where we see the people running for office who, who can make anti-American statements themselves and still win an election. The, I think the you know we have to wait and see what information comes out about what, what what motivated the raid. Was it really necessary? Was that the only way to get the documents? If uh, now they're saying they're nuclear documents. Uh, I mean, I don't know if he took home the the football or the you know the combinations or something, but you know it's it, the appearances certainly are very worrisome. And what, what to me is very troubling is that it, it sharpens the divide that exists already and raises the temperature. We're seeing it happening in in uh, rallies and in elections uh, across the country. We have to be concerned about what are the long term implications. You, you, people don't have confidence in governments. We end up like South America, yeah. and um, and we should talk about South America because as much as I've talked about it all of the months and in the last couple of years, what we've seen just in the last few weeks is is really horrifying. And the fact that the administration doesn't seem to be focused much on that, I'm talking about the growth of Iranian and other influence and and Russia, China, all operative there. You know, Honduras this week talked about moving their embassy back from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. It's, uh, you know, we, we saw the change in Colombia now, the government, the leftist, and, and from a very friendly government before, and friendly to U.S., and friendly to Israel, and Chile, Costa Rica, and Colombia, and I mean, all over, let alone the growth of the investment by China, buying huge swaths of land, and raping the countries, the the activities of of Iran are expanding with Venezuela. They're rebuilding their refineries, so it's a long term uh, control factor there. I mean, there's so much more on this that we should talk about, but the the, the changes amongst the governments and and that is very frightening. Well, uh, I therefore we need and we need to have a unified country to be able to face the challenges that we have today whether it's China, whether it's Islam, and especially Iran, and uh, and therefore anything that divides us and that undermines that is, I think, very counterproductive. Uh, to me, the most important thing you just told us is that if we're not careful, our own government could look very similar to these uh, South American governments. I think we have inherent enough protections, and, and I'm confident that the you know, Congress and others will will uh, not let that happen. What I'm talking about is the dynamic within the country of the divisions, the um, people taking streets to, to not using ballots but bullets and using um, different ways to express their frustrations, their anger, because the level of anger is clearly is rising. And you see it also in the level of violence that is in our cities. And, and we saw, again, examples this week of very tragic examples in case in Baltimore, Washington, uh, just horrific, and, and no, doesn't even seem to be a cause or anything to it, just random violence. So I'm concerned about all the things that contribute to further um, disruption of our society. Yeah, now that you brought it up, we should mention that uh, based on comments on our app and reaction we're getting from the Baltimore, Washington area, a lot of people knew R.E.A. Wolf. And his uh, murder obviously continues to be uh, a, a completely a complete mystery at this point. Uh, although uh, you said to me off the air that it does appear to be random and not uh, somebody who actually knew him or anything like that. And there is a reward you mentioned to me that's now being posted by the police department down there, and there are photos already uh, of the uh, perpetrator of the murderer 
Uh, so we're hoping he'll be brought to justice uh, sooner rather than later. Um, it's a tragic thing. He's very close to my son and my daughter-in-law. And because uh, the mother, his mother was the principal of the Beis Yaakov, where my daughter-in-law teaches. But the, but they were very close friends. They were a remarkable family. This young guy is a six-month-old baby who works uh, putting up solar paneling in a house in in Washington. And it, the the latest account says the guy just walked up and pumped the bullets into him. It's 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 horrific, and we have to make sure. But the police have been very responsive and cooperative, and. They put up a $25,000 reward. Hopefully that will lead to something. Yeah, certainly hope so. Um, back for a moment in the Israeli politics, because as you mentioned, Likud primary was this week. Do you, I mean, I, I, I saw the entire list of, of uh, winners, so to speak, in the Likud primary, meaning the list that they'll likely submit or the list that's close to what's going to be submitted before the election. And then, of course, depending on how many mandates, how many seats they get in the Knesset, that'll determine how many people uh, from Likud obviously will sit in the Knesset. Um, it, it's funny because since Netanyahu's at the top of the ticket and it's his party and has been for so long we get the impression that the party's basically the same as always been but then you look at the names and some of the newcomers that are there and and we are really just just you know the we're we're the absence of netanyahu away from i think the likud party being very different than what we've been used to do you get that impression when you see the list of of of, uh, likud people well it's a combination i think you're right that there are uh, new names and that a lot of old names uh, relegated to much lower positions, the most prominent being Uli Edelstein, who was number two or three in the last couple of uh, elections, and that was uh, number 17, and actually even lower, I think, when they put in all their mandated positions. Uh, and there's a whole group of people uh, who are talking, or they're in, there's discussion that they might break away. Uh, Edelstein is demanding that he be made a minister to stay in, and he has been one. You know, he was speaker of the Knesset. He's a very capable guy. Uh, and talk about them aligning with another party or having a breakaway faction. Uh, Netanyahu stalwarts like Yerub Levin came in at the top of the list. And there's some that we're used to, like Steinitz, who was very close to Netanyahu and a minister for a long time. A uh, very intelligent uh, um, guy dropped out completely before the election, right. and others like Benny Begin dropped out. Um, people who have um, in in different parties too. You see in like the the, the old timers, uh, Nachman Shai, who's the minister for diaspora affairs, came in like 17, and they're only going to get they only poll four or five seats. And uh, Omar Barlev, the minister, I think for Police security um, also finished out of the money, and they brought in new people. Kariv, uh, the first and former Rabbi Nicholas, uh, was at the top of the list together with um, a newcomer, and the uh, um, and so Meirav Michaeli is rebuilding it, and it was mostly young people, I think. There, in the Kud case, I think it was Netanyahu exerting his you know campaign and worked to to get the outcome that they did. And now it's job to stabilize the party and to see that it sustains because they are the largest. Can they sustain the the numbers that they have now, 34, 35, 33, 36 maybe? Um, but one can anticipate that a lot of parties do not have primaries. Right. So anticipate that if right now, probably um, 
Lapid and Gans' parties will do better than they were before the war. And just a couple of more seats, just a couple of more mandates, and it'll be a very different Israeli government, a more stable one. Or one or two. One or two. Right, one or two. still makes all the difference in the world. It's unbelievable. Um, although we're sort of going through the same thing in this country, at least that's the impression we're under, as people debate whether the Senate could change hands and whether the House is likely to change hands. So we see that, you know, it's. I wouldn't say anything here is 50-50, although the Senate would argue with me on that. <laughs> but, but it does seem like, uh, you know, on both sides of the world, we're sort of like right down the middle you know half half of a country feeling one way i know in israel it's different it's not half but you get my point uh that but it's a very important reminder to get people to come out and nobody realizes that we have an election this month in new york and there are primaries there are big primaries you have 10 candidates in one congressional district some of whom are very hostile and in in other districts there are for both state and federal positions members of congress state senators and others there are people who are affiliated with the squad, with uh, BDS, who are pro-BDS. So people have to find out who the candidates are. Look what your Jewish community leadership advises. So they've been meeting with the candidates. It's really important every because the turnout is likely to be low. But for every vote, is multiplied in its influence. And as you said, we're talking about a Congress that could be very close. We're talking about... Um, you know, uh, sending a message about bail reform, about all the things that we're concerned about, security, community security. It's imperative. People just take a few minutes. You can do absentee ballots. I don't know if you can still sign up anymore, but you can certainly... Early voting. Uh, uh, do early voting. And by the way, on the subject of Jewish leadership and uh, when it comes to these, uh, politic- these, these um, uh, elections... Um, I think they need to make decisions sooner rather than later. Some, you know, some have really delayed their decisions. Like some of the newspapers have delayed their endorsements. And the and the reality is that, you know, uh, early voting is starting already. And as long as early voting is going to become more and more common, you know, those who who look to certain sources for advice on these things need to be, uh, you know, need to be advised what to do if someone's seeking that advice. So I think that I think Jewish leadership can't wait can't wait till a couple of days before election day anymore. Uh, with early voting being so common, I think they have to come out earlier mm-hmm. with certain recommendations. By the way, speaking of politics, I saw that a potential successor to Mahmoud Abbas has been ousted from PA leadership. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I guess that they, even though we joke about you know the fact that he's never leaving office, I guess someone is preparing for the next stage because they're very careful about who they're allowing to stay in the inner circle and who not. Uh, it, but it's the traditional course, you know, El Kidway, uh, Arafat's nephew, is organizing a group and because he uh, uh, broke with uh, the leadership of Hamas, and, and it, by the way, it's of um, uh, of Abbas, and by the way, it's very widespread, the, the resentment against the government, the fact that he's in his 18th year of four-year term, he's old, they feel that the corruption is so widespread that, that they've done nothing for the people, aside from the battle with Israel but just for their own internal purposes. And the, every time somebody emerges as a leader, it's very short-lived, and sometimes they're short-lived. <laughs> and, uh, but they, you know, you saw this case is the most recent where they, they eliminate, they try to uh, isolate the, anybody who's a, a challenger, a potential challenger, but the growing resentment and sentiment within the population is, is unavoidable. Yeah, no question about that. Um, Iran's plot to kill John Bolton. What do you think of that story? Pardon me? Iran's plot to kill John Bolton. Yes, 
this is and and Pompeo and others. Uh, this, uh, I mean, it just tells you what what, what we're dealing with. This is, uh, by the way, years old. Uh, I saw Bolton not long ago. He's at the Regency, and there the police blocked the street for him when he was leaving and coming because of the of this long term threat that's been posed against him. And I'm, I'm I'm not sure that it's over. You know, it's like the fatwa against uh, Zaman Rushdie. Right. It, it doesn't end because there's always going to be one crackpot who who will still pursue it. And here you had people being paid off to do it. I think the indictment is an important one, but it's a message. In the meantime, we're negotiating with the, the same people who are behind this and to, and giving concessions, talking about hundreds of billions of dollars that would flow, and by 2030, even up to a trillion dollars, talking about allowing them to keep so much of the infrastructure and, and so many of the promises that were made, uh, even talking about removing the companies of the IOGC, even if they're not taking the Revolutionary Guard off the foreign terrorist organization, as was demanded. So we just lift the sanctions off scores and scores of companies, which they own, and and therefore they get the benefit. And we see how they and Russia are working, uh, skirting the sanctions. And, the um, you know, it's not a done deal yet. It's not clear that the Supreme Leader really wants a deal. Because in a year anyway, the sunset clauses are going to start. The, the limitation of the ballistic missiles ends, I think, in 23 or early 24. The um, other restrictions will all sunset, uh, meaning end in, in the next couple of years. So we're talking about a very short-term impact in, the, in this deal and maybe at a high price. Um, and the, the uh, rationale behind it, you know, of all this time, they kept saying, oh, there's no deal, no deal, no deal maybe to offset people, to, to limit the, the objections. But you see Democrats and others speaking up in the Congress against it. Um, even Europeans who, who are expressing uh, concern, though this is a European proposal. They said, this is the final draft, this is the final draft, which is the same language we heard from U.S., European, and other officials for months and months. Always is that they have a couple weeks, they have 10 days, they have this, and they keep buying time, advancing their nuclear program, uh, enhancing the infrastructure that they have now, the the launch of uh, a missile and and the fact that Russia was contracted by Iran to put a, a, a spy satellite up in uh, in orbit, which they did this past week, which will be able to monitor Israeli bases and and those in the uh, the Gulf as well, because uh, this time it's a high definition camera. Other times, the missiles, when they said that they were putting up, you know, satellites and stuff, because that's not banned under the restrictions on Iran, uh, it was really just to test and to develop their ballistic missile capacity. This time, the one that Russia is putting into orbit, uh, or put into orbit, uh, Russia wants to use over Ukraine, and, and the Iranians say, no, that they're going to have complete control from day one. Evidence is that uh, Russia will, will use it perhaps first to, to spy on the, on the Ukraine, on and military and infrastructure. So the, you know, on every front, they're moving ahead. They have a huge income from oil this year because of the rise in prices, because of the smuggling, mostly going to China. Russia and Iran are competing on that, but they're also working together in Putin's presence in Tehran. The tripartite meeting got much less attention than it deserved. And you see that Turkey and Iran and Russia are also playing together, even though all three of them hate each other, basically, and, and are competing in Syria. 
Turkey wants to take part of, of Syria and to go after the PKK and to maybe occupy a swath of land there or in Iraq. And they're, they're all jockeying for position. Unbelievable. We truly need a Shabbos Nachamu, one of great comfort <laughs> and comfort knowing that somehow the world will survive all of this. Please we'll God. Survive. <laughs> Please God. I hope we have enlightened people who are ready to stand up. We, we, we cannot uh, allow Iran to continue on the path that it is expanding its influence in Africa. And as they talk about in South America, which only started because of what doing in Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, all these countries, Cuba, uh, are, are, are moving in, in a terrible direction. And they are uh, they're investing in these countries because this is a long term process. It's not short term. We West generally talks about, you know, very short term and doesn't have long term strategies, which are really essential to meet the challenges that we face today. No question about it. All right. uh, Next week, we're not uh, going to be convening, but two weeks, please, God. Uh, I I will be. Yes, I'll be back. All right, and uh, we wish you a very uh, good Shabbos Nachamu, and let's uh, continue to remember that the future of the Jewish people is in the state of Israel as we go with Nefesh Ben Nefesh this week. Malcolm, I thank you, and have a wonderful Shabbos. Have a great Shabbos. We'll speak in two weeks. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents, major American Jewish organizations with us Fridays at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.